0: The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 312. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan where you can watch this podcast. You can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. When you enroll, you get a free class. It's a great way to support the show. Get something free. And you can purchase one of my classes there, which of course helps support what I'm doing here. So you get great stuff and you support this free-of-charge podcast, so uh, it is a win-win for me and for you. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Also get your Brian McClanahan show, or I should say Brian McClanahan book plates there. If you want my autograph on one of my books, you can purchase one of those. So uh, you can show it off, right? It's a great souvenir then. Also, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com, Click on that support. Uh, I'm sorry, shop tab. Excuse me, the shop tab, uh, and you can get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. So you've got the Think Locally, Act Locally stickers, which are becoming very popular, and you've got my logo, which has the snake on it. It's a cool logo. You got that on all kinds of great stuff as well. Uh, don't forget to also rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast. share it around on social media, do all you can to get people thinking locally and acting locally. It's a great way to spread the word and have organic growth. Of course, you can also go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. It's my affiliate link for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Another great way to get something for something, right? You get you pay, you get the over 20 classes, you support this show, you support Tom Woods, you support great stuff that way too. So, um, all kinds of cool things to do. And I do appreciate all your support. If you have a show idea, please shoot it my way. Again, I may not always respond to your emails, but I do read them. so um, it's uh, I like to hear from you. So I, I, I do this for you. and um, I want to hear what you think about things. All right. First and foremost, let me say something this particular episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I've only done one this week because I'm in the middle of doing some things right now in my own regular life, and I just haven't had time to commit to doing a podcast. But also, my studio is going to undergo some changes where I record it, so I don't have video for this particular episode. It's audio only. I will put this up on YouTube with a still image, but there's going to be no video of the podcast. I should be back up and running with video no later than the week of... Memorial Day, Uh, but uh, probably not next week. Um, It will be the following week that I'll have video back, and for a time I'll be in a different-looking studio while I'm working on some things. So, anyways, no video for this particular episode except for a still image, but you still get the great audio content, so uh, let me just say that. All right, well, I want to talk about a particular issue I think that's um, becoming... Uh, a real problem, and it's—you've seen all kinds of articles about it. It's about the meat supply problem in America. And you go into any grocery store right now, um, and you're seeing less and less meat on the shelves, particularly if you're a beef eater. Now, uh, full disclosure: I don't eat a lot of red meat. I eat mostly uh, fish and turkey and some chicken, um, but uh, I do eat red meat occasionally, um, and. So in the meat that I do eat, I try not to get uh, the major processed meats, uh, you know, the, the mass processed meats, I should say. I get um, organic meats, you know, uh, grass fed. I want to say organic meats is kind of funny, but uh, grass fed beef and things like that. So I try to do uh, local farm shopping. Anyways, you can get it at, the, at your grocery stores. It's just produced locally and and uh, packaged and put in the grocery stores, um, but. Uh, we are seeing some major problems with meat distribution in the United States because all the meat packing plants are uh, facing shutdowns and supply uh, supply problems in terms of farmers and also uh, the distribution of that meat is facing problems. So people are getting a little worried. Americans consume a tremendous amount of meat. I know that um, when I had a, a friend of mine who's from Germany stayed here in the 1990s. Um, and he uh, he always talked about how much more meat and processed meat Americans ate than he was used to in the 90s in Germany he just they just didn't eat as much of that processed meat you think German sausage and they do eat sausage and but it was different i mean he he was processed food they ate a lot more uh fresh meats uh, where he was from and not so much processed meats and uh, preservatives and other things he used to complain about it said it hurt his stomach all the time um, but Americans do eat a tremendous amount of meat and processed meat, so this is this is potentially a major crisis for Americans. How are we going to get our meat? How are we going to go to Wendy's or McDonald's or Burger King? Um, you know, how are we going to do that if we don't have all this processed meat out there? Uh, I did see that you know Wendy's is now suffering from meat shortages at times or not. They just don't have as uh, as much of it. I mean, how do we get our hamburgers right if we can't have all this meat? Well, I mean, this is a good question, Uh, and uh, it's one that uh, people are starting to contemplate or at least start, or they're starting to think about things in a think locally, act locally way. Now, I've talked about on this podcast before, supporting local. As a matter of fact, all the way back in January, I did an episode on the coronavirus, and I talked about, in that particular episode, I was mentioning the Colombian Exchange, um, and then I did another one on quarantine. So I've, I've done these episodes talking about, uh, the, but the one on coronavirus where I talked about, uh, international food markets and other things and how you should be looking more towards the local anyways. Uh, people have asked me recently, well, can you, is there anything out there I can read on this think locally, act locally message where it would be, uh, this is the guidebook to it? Well, I mean, no, there's nothing like that. Um, there is, uh, some, I mean, if you, if you get into organic, uh, organic farming and you start reading material like that, or, um, and you're going to have to get some diverse material or you read, uh, if you get into, um, uh, what else could you, could you think about with that? Uh, prepping is one that, uh, you could kind of have that think locally. I mean, it's, it's, I know that people think preppers, they're kind of crazy, um, well, almost all Mormons are preppers uh, in in their own way. I mean, look, they they prepare for a crisis situation. That's all you're doing if you're prepping. You're just you're providing things for your family. You're thinking locally, and uh, and so I think the Mormon community uh, does a very good job in promoting this type of self sufficiency and, of course, uh, independence. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. At the at the core of think locally, act locally, is independence. Whether it's spiritual independence, financial independence, uh, personal independence, uh, you are trying to do as much as you can to break free from the chains of the state as you can. It doesn't mean you're anti-community. In fact, you would have to get very pro-community because you're going to have to be involved in trying to also work with your neighbors and other people at the local level. It's political independency. Because you're going to start thinking about your local community, you're going to think about uh, what can I do here in my own town, my own community, even my own subdivision or neighborhood, to make sure that we're okay should there be a major crisis. It's something that everyone needs. I mean, look, I mentioned this before on this show with the Doomsday Book, uh, which was the first census in in uh, what became England, England. Um and it was the Normans, right? William the Conqueror commissioned this census, and a large town was about the size of your subdivision. I mean, so we have these little towns all over the place, your subdivisions. If you live in a suburban area now, if you live in rural, well, I mean, then you're in the estates that you had, and uh, all throughout European history, and so it's a whole different dynamic. But if you live in suburbia, which most Americans do now, or urban areas are uh, problematic. But if you live in suburbia, well, then you've already got the small town or the large town, the medieval large town that you had before. I mean, you could have a thriving market there in your own little suburban community. You could have a thriving community. So get to know these things. And one of the things you can do, and I'm going to talk about on this particular episode, is support your local farmers. Now, I have a, 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 a an acquaintance who uh, works... Uh, in DC, and um, he, he he does things with agriculture. and um, he, he talks a lot about uh, you know the restrictions and rules and stuff with farming and how hard it is for farmers to to um, to operate in America now. And you have these very large commercial farms which do put a lot of pressure on your small on your small independent farmers, and that becomes difficult. Um, so if you go out and you can support these local farmers again, I've mentioned it before, but in the in a community near where I currently reside, there's a large number of organic farmers, and they have well, they did before COVID. They have their farmers market, a real farmers market every every week, and they all come in. Um, you have a you had one guy that was growing hydroponic lettuce, which was some of the best stuff I've ever eaten. No pesticides, no herbicides. You just put it in a greenhouse hydroponic, the stuff was so good, uh, particularly his, his uh, butter lettuce. It was just awesome stuff. Uh, but again, he, he, had a, he, had his, he had three greenhouses set up. He drives a bus normally. His side job is growing this hydroponic lettuce. He had some greenhouses set up in his backyard. And uh, you could go to his house and you could buy that hydroponic lettuce. He had all kinds of varieties of it. It was so good. You knew exactly where it came from. You go right there, get it, chop it up, put it in your salad bowl, and you got a great meal. Uh, with some of this you know, spinach, lettuce, he had all kinds of great stuff. Um, and uh, then you have an, uh, a couple of uh, farmers that we would use. Again, uh, it came right, they pulled it right out of the dirt. They actually and, and brought it right to the market. Now, if you don't know anything about, about organic farming, you're not going to get, for example, strawberries, which are wonderful. You're not going to get the big, fat, juicy strawberries that you see. Oh, my like, gosh, look how big they're going to be smaller. But the dirty little secret of strawberries is that the smaller ones are actually better um, than the bigger fat strawberries. People want these huge strawberries. They think that thing's going to be great. The smaller ones are better. Um, and, of course, you can do some of this yourself, too, if you grow some of these things in your own backyard, if you have the ability to do it in the land or uh, the time. But support those local farmers. Find the organic farmers in your community and go and buy from them directly. Get on a co-op. Uh, a share can be, you know, 500 bucks, and you go and you pick up your food every week. They give you a certain amount of produce. Uh, when we would do this with this one uh, local farmer, he would give you, uh, for, depending on what you want to pay, but you would get a ton of, you know, of course, uh, greens, uh, carrots, onions. He would do things like that, but you'd also get eggs. They had chickens there. You would get, you know, he also did his own pork. If you wanted that, you could get pork. Uh, we didn't do that, but um, it, it's just—it's a great way to support people. And and I knew the farmer, and, and he was—he was right there. I mean, I could talk to the guy, I could go visit the farm. You knew exactly what he was producing. That is one way to think locally, act locally—is to produce, is to—is to protect and support those local farms. They're doing much to feed people, right? And you've seen these stories where a guy, you know, dairy farm is just going to have to pour out, so they just start selling the milk, and people line up. Uh, because they know exactly where that milk is coming from. They're not going to the grocery store and getting the milk there. If you If you use dairy, uh, they're, not, they're not getting the milk from uh, who knows what farm from where. Uh, it's coming right from the cow they can see. I mean this is, this is what this is one thing you can do if you're thinking of thinking locally and acting locally, is support the local food chain because we all have to be fed. And doing that, of course, is going to go a long way into not only helping the economy of your area, but keeping you healthy, too. I mean, you know where that food is coming from. You're, you're seeing less and the, the nutrients are higher. You're seeing uh, less and less of the need for preservatives and other things when it comes right from there. Um, so that is one thing you can do. You don't have to be a, You don't have to grow your own food all the time, but you can find your local farmers. You can find local butchers, and you can do it that way. Uh, And that is a great way to think locally, act locally. Um, Now, I'm going to read an article about this on the back end of the break I'm going to take here in a second. It was actually an article produced at Law & Liberty, and it gets into the same idea. What can I do, or how can this meat crisis be a benefit to... Uh, to smaller, decentralized communities. I mean, that's the ultimate goal when we think about it. It's, it is the ultimate goal to have smaller, decentralized communities. Uh, not just po- for po- political reasons. I mean, I think that there's a lot to do with that. Uh, of course, people email me and say, well, my community is so corrupt. Um, well, I mean, you got to try to work to change minds. I mean, politics is the, is the art of changing minds. And I know it's not easy. Um and if you learn how to go about in the right way, I mean you have to be um, humble at times and you have to uh, don't seem like you're just gonna, you know, dictate to people and hector to people. You gotta do you gotta work with people, I mean, and and, and talk to them. Um that's something that's uh, if you're not if you're not comfortable with that or good at that, I mean this these can be problems, but this can be problematic. But um, certainly uh, this is one way to get that decentralization that, uh, you know, thinking locally, acting locally working is to support those local farms. All right. So I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be right back on the other side. I'll see you in a second. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum and uh, my family has homeschooled. All of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum. That's why I designed the United States History eighteen 18- to eighteen sixty five and eighteen sixty five to present. You've got enough material. You've got lesson plans. You've got uh, tests. You've got reading material. You've got reading seminars. You've got thirty six weeks. If you take them, buy them both. You've got thirty six weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school h- history curriculum. Or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about small farms, of course, the meat, the meat production problem. And the piece I'm going to read is entitled... Uh, it's at Law and Liberty. Let me go back to it here. It's, it's Small is Beautiful and Critical. Now, the title is taken from a 1975 book by E.F. Schumacher. Now, if you want to, I mean, this book can kind of be a... There, there's not a whole lot of economic examples in it, but it's a great philosophical book on small-scale microeconomies. Small is Beautiful, E.F. Schumacher. Uh, this particular... Uh, essay is written by Paul Um Paul Schwenison is uh, he's writes a lot for Law and Liberty. Um, he's uh, he's a libertarian uh, environmentalist, and um, he I think this essay is very good um, about the the meat problem, and he, he brings up this issue of small ranches and small slaughterhouses and what people should be doing to try to promote. Uh, small-scale agriculture. So he begins, he says, uh, again, small is beautiful and critical is that Law & Liberty produced May 13th, just a a couple of days ago. Uh, Fickle, the hand of fate. Just weeks ago, I was publicly bemoaning the plight of small-scale agriculture and imminent demise of the family farm while offering to sell my ranch. Cheap. Now in a turn of events we could not make up, let alone foresee. We are trying like mad to fulfill the sudden demand for local beef orders. So here's a guy that has a small ranch, a cattle ranch, and a slaughter facility. Um, And he's thinking about selling it. Now, because of the the coronavirus, people are rushing back to these small-scale slaughterhouses. I mean, this is a wonderful story. He says, our family operates a cattle ranch in small-scale, very small-scale slaughter facility in southern Arizona. Twenty-five years ago, we stepped away from the ever-increasing consolidation of the meat industry, backed out of the agribusiness model, and chose the path less taken by directly marketing to the local food uh, markets. We didn't want to become another producer peon in the multinational corporate machinery that has made family-scale agriculture nothing more than a novelty item. Now more than ever, as major meat packers shut down amidst COVID-19 concerns, we're reminded why vibrant, prosperous, small-scale agriculture is so vital— not only to our national food supply, but to our national character. This crisis reinforces just how far we stray from Republican ideals of frugal self-sufficiency as we now live in the shadow of twin leviathans, a bloated bureaucracy that beggars belief and a crony elite that hides behind the skirts of the nanny state. The impending meat shortages at the grocery store are the predictable outcome of regulatory sclerosis, a dogs, breakfast of codes... Ordinances and ever growing restrictions that pose a nearly impenetrable burial to entry for those wanting to operate small local meat processes. The local butcher is a rapidly extinguishing relic, and the reason is not is not a lack of demand, but lack of supply. Unless you are a JBS or Smithfield with phalanxes of attorneys and lobbyists capable of securing preferential tax treatment, you will have a tough time penciling out a meat operation. Believe me. Um, I mean, this is a ama- this is an amazing story. So here's a guy that went into uh, decided to buck the trend and have a small scale farm and ranch and a uh, meat processing, and COVID nineteen has has rescued his operation because he's not one of the large meat processing meat packaging companies out there. One one of my colleagues uh, who's actually a vegan, or no, he's a vegetarian. He he's not. Uh, not a not a vegan. He did veganism for a while, but he he was he's a trained butcher, and he says he actually hates the term butcher. But he's a trained butcher. He grew up in the meat pa- meat processing meat packing industry, and um, he just doesn't eat meat. It's a he's, he's a really interesting. He's in his seventies and um, uh, healthy as a horse. I mean, this guy uh, still exercises all the time. He's but um, he's uh, but he doesn't eat meat, and um, he he's his. Cholesterol levels, blood pressure, all that is just just—it's at levels of you know, people in their 30s. It's, it's amazing. Um, but anyways, I digress. He says, where we're from, small meat plants used to be common. At least 10 were within driving distance where I grew up. Now we're down to three, and two of those are for sale, and one is operated and subsidized by the local university. Since 1990 alone, the country has lost around a third of its slaughter facilities. More disturbing still, while federally inspected USDA plants have decreased substantially, they have not suffered as badly as non-federal plants. Around 1,300 non-federal plants have winked out of existence in the last generation. The trend has not wavered. Consolidation is the unmistakable and dangerous course. Consolidation. So it's centralization that's creating all of this problem. And of course, you go back to the early 20th century with the Pure Food and Drug Act and Teddy Roosevelt, the idea of after Upton Sinclair's jungle, was to centralize this. And the, and the, the point was to crush the small meatpacking industry. Now, it took time, but over time, this is exactly what's happened. Small businesses can't compete with, with the larger ones because they can't pay for the regulations. Regulations help big companies because they can push out the small. Uh, you saw this. I worked for a few years in, in the tobacco industry, when they regulated the tobacco industry the way they did with the Master Settlement Agreement, which uh, was an agreement signed for you know people that had gotten sick from smoking, uh, the big companies like Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds and Brown and Williamson, some of the big tobacco companies, some I mean, they loved it because Marlboro, for example, Philip Morris Marlboro would always be the number one brand of cigarette because they it, they could never have any competition again, so they loved these things. And of course, smoking's terrible, but Um, but it's a nice example of how this works. When you regulate and you force all these requirements on these companies to do any of this stuff, well, then the small people are driven out. He continues, The ironclad law of unintended consequences, along with a boundless faith in government oversight as an effective means to protect people from the food they eat, has now left us flat footed and facing food shortages. Decades of ever greater centralization have made our food system top heavy and unstable. We've lost a robust, local, grassroots meat infrastructure to learn to lean on, I'm sorry, when the big boys go down. And we've lost it because policy has made it nearly impossible for the diverse, dispersed production we needed to insulate us against the unforeseen. So think about that particular paragraph. You hear all the time that decentralization is unproductive. It's bad. It it's, creates all kinds of issues. At the end of the day, it creates, as he says, kind of a fallback. And if you're already doing these things, if you're already thinking locally and acting locally, this whole crisis wouldn't even have been a crisis. If your community was already in a, in a position where it was insulated in some ways, in a variety of ways, in a variety of areas, insulated, COVID-19 would have been nothing. There was actually, I read an article about a community out in Washington state that's had no COVID cases, yet the entire area is shut down. And it has no COVID cases because they're pretty much an insulated community. They're, 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 they're isolated in a way, but I mean, people, there's interaction with the mainland there. They're on an island. But they're insulated from the, from the problems. And uh, they've had no cases, yet they have to face all of these same problems. This is where all this one-size-fits-all, top-down solutions that have been foisted on us by the central authorities, the Politburo in Washington, D.C., so to speak, are more of a problem than anything else. I mean, the state should have reacted to, these, to this COVID crisis, which they did, but they all follow each other's lead. Georgia, is just they just keep opening. Right? We're just going to open. And uh, Georgia hasn't seen a huge spike in cases. Just open it back up trying to get people back out there and the economy going again and doing things of course you're seeing all the articles about uh you know differences of uh, you know how they're, uh the reaction of these things whether it's face masks or gloves and anything this good or bad I mean I'm not a doctor so I'm not going to say anything about that but Georgia is just responding the way that Georgia wants to respond uh, and this is where I mean you have you know the the flexibility of decentralization allows you to do this uh, he continues, the cattle industry in our part of the world is in a tailspin even before the pandemic. Mutterings and complaints about price fixing by the big packers and cow half producers up in arms. Had cow half, produ- cow calf, excuse me, producers, if I can read this morning. By the big meat packers had cow calf producers up in arms. Okay, there we go. anti lawsuits, reminiscence of, of the beef combines of Roosevelt's era, indicated something distinctly awry in the industry. What the latest catastrophe means for us is anyone's guess. It's reasonable to assume, however, more of the same. Big packers have already been ordered back to work despite COVID concerns, and the price-fixing investigations will probably be conveniently shuffled under the rug. Corporate meat producers will probably survive and grow even larger when things return to normal. So he's saying, I mean, this is, the government is going to bail these people out. That's coming you know they, well we need we we we've lost 2 billion dollars we need 2 billion dollars or we've lost 20 billion dollars whatever it is they're going to come up with some B number that we need to uh, keep us afloat because we're too big to fail and we everybody needs their hamburgers but as Schwenison is pointing out here you've got hamburgers if you just go and shop at your local farm you can go get all the hamburger you want he's got a i i i would hope that people would read this or hear this: If you're in Southwest Arizona and you would go support Schwinnison's business on a regular basis, hey, give me—I'll take some hamburgers from you. I'll get some—I'll get some uh, T-bones. You know, I'll get some filet mignon if you got that. Uh, I'll get some New York strips, some roasts. I'll get some things from you. It's good stuff. I mean, you—and you can taste the difference when you get it right, right from the farm. I mean, it really is so much better. Uh, the other day, uh, we purchased some blackberries from uh, from the store. And, of course, we have some blackberries in our yard that we planted. There's no difference. I mean, there's no comparison. The blackberries that are here or are in our dirt taste a million times better because you're picking them right off the vine. They're so good. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's just so much better now. Uh, He concludes, there is, however, perhaps a chance to do things a little differently. The silver lining in this crisis is the recognition that state-sponsored push towards bigger, better, and cheaper meat production came at a major cost. Perhaps customers will have rediscovered the value of buying local meat from people they can speak with, from systems they can relate to. When the dust settles, perhaps there will be the political will to deregulate an industry that badly needs it. Perhaps a less burdensome regulatory environment would entice a new generation to reinvent small-scale, locally produced, locally processed meats. Perhaps we'll even miraculously rediscover the Republican virtues of keeping things small, diffuse, and decentralized. Time will tell. I've mentioned this from the beginning, and I'm about um, this, uh, this issue and how COVID can actually contribute to thinking locally and acting locally. And I think he's right on here. And he's using Republican with a small with a lowercase R. I mean that's that's important. This is Republican with a lowercase r. And why we need to uh, to to think about that and continue down that path. I mean, that's really what we're what this is all about. It's local, small, small is beautiful, uh, a thought process. And I think Schwenison in, in discussing this meat processing issue, is right on. You could you could branch this out to just about anything. It could be the lettuce that you get, as I've already mentioned, or the, the produce. Uh, it could be the goods and services. Now, most people do local goods and services. But, I mean, think about all the consumables you get that are not produced locally. It's very hard to find those things now. But uh, I think Tom Woods... Uh, Wrote something in an email the other day about Etsy. I mean, think about all the people that are producing masks, whether you, whatever you think of masks, but it's created a cottage industry. You're going back to the <laughs> to the person making masks in their in their uh, in their spare bedroom. Uh, you're back to. Uh, to these small spinners, right? I mean, you're you're not getting the mass-produced clothing, but you're getting people that are doing these things. There. I remember years ago uh, there was a a lady that I knew that made it was homemade clothing. Now the reason they did it, they were a big union family, uh, so they you know they were they were against all the uh, job destruction of things like NAFTA and all the all the textile mills going overseas. So they would buy fabrics and they would make clothes at home. They would make all their own clothing, and they would often be picked on. uh, The kids would be picked on. You know, you're you're the homemade clothing family. But they decided they were going to, uh, out of principle, because again, they were big union people. They were going to do it. But on the on the other hand, what they're doing essentially is creating. And I think, if I remember correctly, they would help. They would make clothes for other people. And but they were creating a very small scale industry uh, of homemade clothing. Uh, there is a push now to have tailored clothing. I mean, custom-made clothing, again, is becoming, uh, is getting popular. People avoiding buying products from China and other places where, you know, or Vietnam, wherever it comes from that's mass-produced. You're getting this small-scale clothing manufacturing again. I mean, this is all wonderful stuff when you think about it. And it's a way to support local economies in this thinking locally, acting locally mantra. So, I like this article, Paul Schwennison. I like the Schumacher book. If you're looking for some things to read or go out and... Uh, Schwenison has written a bunch of other stuff on uh, decentralization, oftentimes from an environmental perspective, which is really interesting. To me, anyways. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClain Show. Video free in terms of me live doing the podcast. But I will be back with that in the near future. It's just like I'm in a transitionary period here. I only had one podcast this week because of that same problem. So uh, I'll be back to it. It's just going to take me a couple of weeks. We are, I'm going to produce podcasts. I might just maybe be one a week, or uh, but no video for a time. So, but I'll be back at it, and I'll see you for the next episode of the Brian McLean Show. See you then. <laughs>